Hi, everyone. I'm Anita Lustria, and for many years I did live radio. Then I transitioned to the podcast world where I feel I found my home. I love talking about spiritual formation, justice issues, and spiritual practices. Throw in the Enneagram, movies, and current events from time to time, and that's what you get on the podcast. I'm glad you've come along for the ride. Welcome to Faith Conversations. Welcome to Faith Conversations, everyone. I'm glad you've joined me again, uh, and I'm glad you join week in and week out and keep downloading this podcast. Uh, you're going to be glad you did this week for sure, because Kendall Vanderslice is with me, and we're going to be talking about her new book, By Bread Alone. Um, I love the title for many reasons. We'll get into what she means by that title in just a few minutes, By Bread Alone. Uh, but first, I want to thank so many of you for your support of the podcast um, over the years, and some of you are new. And if you want to know how to support the podcast, you can give a gift on PayPal. The email address is producer at anitalustria.com. You can give on Venmo or other ways, or you can just mail me a check. That works as well, and you can find that uh, address at anitalustria.com. So thank you so much for your support. Um, some people uh, want have the question, uh, what do I give? How, you know what? It's whatever you want to give. Um, sometimes I'll say, think about it as a subscription for the year, $30 gift for the year. But honestly, it doesn't matter. I just appreciate your support and your prayers in the ongoing Ministry of Faith Conversations. Well, let me introduce our guest today. If you've been long-term listeners, you have heard her voice here on Faith Conversations before when we talked about her book, We Will Feast. Kendall Vanderslice is a baker. She's a writer, a speaker, as well as the founder of the Edible Theology Project, a ministry that connects the communion table to the kitchen table. And for those of you interested in these things, she's a graduate of Wheaton College, Boston University, and Duke Divinity School. So yeah, she's done all that too besides bakes a bunch of bread. Uh, so I want to say welcome back to Kendall Vanderslice. Hi, Kendall. Hi, Anita. It's so good to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, let's give a little history here for people who maybe didn't catch uh, the episode that we did together when we talked about your book, We Will Feast. Uh, I, I think the big question most people uh, ask when they hear Edible Theology Project is, what's that? <laughs> So it's it's relatively new, the late uh, teens of twenty of the two thousands, right? So talk talk about what it is and why you began that. Yeah, so the Edible Theology Project began unofficially in two thousand eighteen as an email newsletter. Um, I have a background in I've I've worked as a professional baker and pastry chef, um, but I also have a background in food studies. Um, so I, I did a degree in food studies at Boston University, which is essentially studying food from the perspective of anthropology, history, literature, kind of all of the cultural and historical dynamics of food. So I had this experience, you know, making food, studying food, and then I went on to do a degree in theology and was looking at the role of food in Christian tradition. And so it's a sort of odd mix of things, but also a really fascinating mix of things. And so I started this newsletter while I was in divinity school just to share with folks a little bit of kind of the line of thought that I was thinking. Um, and it has just continued to develop over the last 
goodness, almost five years now into we are a nonprofit um, that develops curriculum and resources for churches, for families, for individuals that looks at this relationship between the bread we share on Sunday morning and the bread that we eat throughout the week. Oh, I love that. And let me say right now, before I forget, that I will have Kendall's website in the show notes for those of you that don't have pen and paper handy, but go ahead and tell what that what the website is if they want to get in touch and, and um, sign up for your newsletter. Yeah, so you can visit us at edibletheology.com. Excellent. Yeah, I think some of you are going to want to do that. I know I am a subscriber to the newsletter, and you will be glad if you decide to go down that route um, and yes. sign up for that. Prayers and recipes every week. Yes, <laughs> it's yeah, a which great, I love. great thing. <laughs> well, and I'm a spiritual director, so I have used um, a prayer or two of yours before oh, in I the spiritual direction context. So I, th- I thought you might really appreciate yes, that. Yes. Um, confession, I have not tried one of the recipes yet, but I look at them and I go, <laughs> maybe, may, maybe sometime, maybe, <laughs> but, um, we'll, we'll, we'll get a little bit more into that. One of the things that, that comes to my mind, whenever I think about you and edible theology, and obviously this title by bread alone, I think about the scriptural references. I mean, we certainly know the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Um, we know Jesus in the wilderness, you know, man does not live by bread alone. He's quoting from the Old Testament, right, in that space. But um, And there are certainly other references. Those, to me, are the two that immediately come to mind, and that's probably true for most people when they hear bread and are thinking of scripture. Well, and of course, I would say the the third one is what is said at the communion table, what what we experience in the scripture that we hear today that is said at, at our communion table when we are partaking in the Lord's Supper. That's obviously another um, very important uh, part of this conversation. I began this past year releasing a weekly Lexio Divina here on the Faith Conversations channel. And I started, I realized this today and I thought, oh, I need to say this. I I start that practice out by saying, may this spiritual practice give you bread for your journey and help mm-hmm. quench your parched soul. So we've used this language in the church forever. Um, talk a little bit about that, even just the language, but but we might not even fully be connecting all the dots yet, but we know the language. Yeah, I mean, bread has forever really kind of stood as this image of sustenance. Um, Both practically, it stood as kind of an image of all of our food. Um, You know, we talk about bread to refer to everything that we eat. We talk about bread to refer to money or our basic needs. You know, we have the breadwinner um, of the household as the one who, you know, makes the money. Um, We talk about bread as just our general sustenance in thinking about sort of bread for the journey, this um, God sustaining us as we go on. And what I want to suggest with this book is that when scripture talks about bread, sometimes scripture is also talking about literal bread, that there is something in literal bread as we bake it and as we eat it that connects us to God in this mysterious and beautiful way. Well, one of the instances is not specifically called bread, but 
uh, I use this image a lot um, in spiritual direction, actually, but manna, yes, which was literal food yes, to yes. sustain them on their journey, the children of Israel, right? And, yeah. and probably was a kind of bread substance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Use- yeah, yeah, guess. bread-like sort of with the flavor of coriander, but a bread-like substance. Yeah, I mean, we see the imagery of bread sort of littered all throughout scripture, but I think that bread in scripture kind of tells this story as well of God's work with us, that the first time we're introduced to bread in scripture is in Genesis 3. Mm-hmm. Um, the very verse that says, you know, this, this we have all of these verses that are um, talking about the curse on creation, this like the the pain and the ruptures that are taking place in creation. And in the midst of that, we're given a gift of bread that it's yes, it's by the sweat of your brow, but by the sweat of your brow, you shall eat your bread. And bread is different than just the food that you would pluck from the tree. It requires a transformation, um, but it also requires an incredible amount of labor. And that's sort of what we see hinted at in this language of Genesis 3, that um, you know, it will require the labor of working the soil, of growing wheat, of threshing and grinding wheat, of turning that wheat into dough, and then building a fire and turning that dough into bread. Um, that there's just an incredible amount of labor and toil involved in this process of developing bread. Um, but what we see throughout the story of scripture is God sort of offering bread to us without that taste of the curse. And so that's part of what we see at play in manna is, you know, the Israelites couldn't go through the labor of growing and harvesting wheat because they were wandering in the desert. And so God offers them this bread. Um, provision. Yes. Yes. Provision, this miraculous right? provision, but also a taste of sort of relief from wow. this curse. I like the language around that. And and I think so often um, stories that are very familiar to us in scripture, it's always helpful to hear someone give just some nuanced differences to the language around it. Yeah, it just helps yeah. us think differently about well, it. And I think, you know, food, bread especially, but food in general is so basic to our life, so basic to our existence, that it is so easy to completely overlook the the role that it plays in shaping us and forming us. You know, what's interesting, even as you said that, what popped into my head was the fact that I, my dad was a pastor, always of smaller churches. And so I grew up in a culture of church suppers. Yeah. You know, this, the small hundred person congregation, 120 that, you know, and so once a month we had church suppers. Now growing older, I was in larger churches and all of a sudden you can't do that anymore. You know, all of a sudden legal stuff comes into play. (laughs) Oh, someone might get sick from something that someone brings. And the loss, I think it really is a loss, the loss of the church supper. Don't you agree? Oh, absolutely. I still have um, for sure one beloved recipe that came from a church supper. And it was always oh, I know what so-and-so will be bringing. Isn't that true? Yeah. I mean, it's particular people are connected to the recipes. It's a way of sharing kind of them and their story, their history, you know, especially as you have like more transient communities or people who have just moved from different places. Their, Their recipe that they bring says something about kind of the community that they've come from. You're just bringing up all kinds of thoughts (laughs) of my own personal history. This is just so interesting. And I'm hoping that it will 
do this in other people as well. Yeah. Um, you, 2013. So not all that long ago, you know, um, I wrote a book called Shades of Mercy. It was a novel. I wrote it along with Karen Rivadanera, a friend of mine, a very fine writer, um, telling a story uh, uh, from Northern Maine, which is where I came from. And we wanted, and I still have the document, we wanted to add a pretty substantial number of recipes from Northern Maine from that time period, which was mid fifties uh, on, yeah, to, to probably mid sixties in that range. And, but the publisher thought that that would, wasn't a good idea, which I can't imagine. I think it's always a good idea. <laughs> yes. Recipes. recipes. People love recipes always. <laughs> yes, Seriously. This is me. I'm like, seriously, uh, you're going to get more sales. Really? You're going to say no to this? Honestly, <laughs> I, I was kind of irked by it, but I still have it. Maybe I'll do something with it someday, something small. Um, but yes, a history, we know um, about people's history. And so, again, it takes me back to northern Maine. My grandfather was a farmer in that intense growing season in northern Maine. But in the winters, he was the head baker at a resort hotel in Florida. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I grew up, I know, isn't that fascinating? He was a marvelous baker and cook, but farmer. And his wife was a good cook too. She was assistant head baker. Wow. Wow. <laughs> head baker. So, but I grew up with homemade bread. Yes. I know. And you talk about that and you do that, of course. I mean, you're, you're all about bread, but you'll appreciate this. I, I had never seen store-bought bread until <laughs> I started going to school in the first grade and had to carry my lunch. And suddenly your homemade bread makes you the weird kid. <laughs> oh, totally. I, yeah, went, yeah. I went home and I said, mom, everyone's bread is square except ours. <laughs> and of course I wanted to fit in. Of I course, want square bread that tasted yeah. horrible, but <laughs> you know, I didn't understand, but, um, that was what I grew up in was every Saturday making the bread that would last or every other Saturday, you know, cause we would freeze some, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So what, what, what got you making bread? I mean, have you always done this? I have always been fascinated by bread. Um, I think something about bread has pulled me in kind of from childhood. Um, I, I share the story of my first communion, which I won't give away here because I think it's a great story and yes. you deserve to read it. Um, but essentially, you know, I, this sense of like, I, I couldn't describe it, but something sort of was drawing me to this bread. Um, and I had a handful of um, field trips to different bakeries when I was growing up, some while I was in school. And then um, while I was homeschooled, my mom arranged some others. And I was just fascinated by the movements of the bakers. I was fascinated by kind of the aliveness of the bread. Um, and then when I was in high school, bread really became a source of comfort and grounding. I had a lot of anxiety. Um, I was an awkward kid in high school. And so bread was kind of in the evenings. Um, baking was this way, this kind of way of grounding myself. Yes. And then I realized that if you bring baked goods to school, people hang out with you. People really <laughs> like you. If people you really like you if you feed them. <laughs> well, I was captured by uh, when I read the forward to your book and to, and who wrote that? That was written by Peter, oh, Reinhardt. Peter Reinhardt. And so I'm as assuming from just the way he wrote that he himself is a baker. 
Yes, he is truly like the master bread baker here in the United States. He helped to kind of um, re-up the artisan bread movement here in the United oh, States. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. I knew yeah. I, I knew I needed to ask you um, about him, and I knew <laughs> yes. he was- If you want to learn to bake, then look for Peter Reinhardt's oh, books. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay, yeah. cool. Well, he, right in the beginning in, uh, of his forward, he said, as um, you know, he's- reading your book, uh, which he calls a superb book, which you got to love that high praise. But he says, Kendall Vanderslice wrote a very simple sentence that triggered an epiphany for me. As soon as flour hits water, a series of transformations begin. And there it is, the essence of this book. And, you know, he goes on to say a little bit more about that. But I think for those who are not bread bakers and and have not ever or very infrequently have engaged in the process with yeast etc we might not understand that as soon as flour hits water a series of transformations begin so talk a little bit about the truth of that yeah so once you mix together water and flour um the flour can never go back to the way that it was before. So flour is, um, inside of the flour, there are two amino acids called glutenin and gliadin. Um, and these two amino acids exist sort of separate from one another, individually coiled up. Um, and as soon as water touches them, they begin to unravel and they begin to form bonds with one another. Um, and as these gluten strands form bonds with one another, it creates a protein structure called gluten. Um, and nowadays, many of us know that word. <laughs> well, isn't... For better or for worse. Isn't that the truth? Well, and I, I actually I should interject that I was thinking that, you know, yeast comes in and that's that's the transformational thing. But no, I mean, this no, is just water and yeah, flour. Yeah, just water and flour. The, uh, the gluten uh, begins to form and that completely transforms the flour. A series of um, enzymes are activated that begin to unlock the starches in the flour. And then that becomes the food that the yeast can eat once once the yeast starts to wake up. Um, but just the flour and the water, this transformation of unraveling um, and that unraveling that then builds bonds that create strength in the dough completely transforms it. Wow. I, oh man, okay, there's so many things. I, <laughs> I'm hoping to keep keep this conversation going in a coherent direction. We might have some tangents here and there, but um, you just alluded to this, you know, you, as you were describing that process, that word gluten came out. Okay. We, we know this. I mean, now mm -hmm. at my church and many, there is a gluten-free option. Yeah. Um, when, when communion is served. And so, uh, you talk about this in the book that there are a lot of us who have, uh, a varied experience with food, let alone bread. But some of that is because of um, illness. Uh, some of that we know many of our families have been touched in one way, shape or form, or even ourselves with um, eating disorders. And uh, you touched on something that I had really forgotten about. And I think it was the eighties or nineties. I don't know, but wow, there was a big surge in Christian circles, of all of these diet books, right? When, yeah. when was that? Yeah. I, I mean, I remember it in the nineties, but it could have existed okay. before no, that. I think you're right. And I was doing a radio talk show host at the time. Every time one of those books came out, I'm like, nope. Nope. Yeah. Sorry, folks. I'm not going to be talking about that. No, I was so troubled by this, but I didn't really have anyone around me 
to even help me think through why, why was I troubled about this? I just set it aside. And so reading, you know, your comment in the book about that, that was something that happened in the church. uh, And a lot of, because of that, I would say all kinds of, and you would even say spiritual misconceptions about our relationship with food or about diet, however you want to word that. And I'd like to hear some of your thoughts surrounding all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, because one of those diets, I don't know if it was one of the, the ones that came out in books from Christian publishers, but we also hear a lot today about the keto diet, yeah. you know, no low carb, no carb, mm-hmm. no, bread, no grains, no, no grain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Talk about all of this stuff. It is complicated. Yeah. And it's-, it's very complicated. So I think we have to start by going back to Genesis to Genesis one through three, um, that in Genesis one and two, we see the story of creation. And in this creation account, um, God keeps creating things and calling it good and creates and calls it good and creates and calls it good. And then God gets to humanity and there is the first thing ever that God calls not good. And that is a human being alone. Um, and then God creates a partner and um, a companion for this human. And then God calls it very good. And so from this sort of beginning opening scenes of creation, we see that humanity was created with two basic needs uh, to draw nutrition and energy from food and also to share our lives with other human beings, to live in community, to live in companionship with others. Um, But then when we look ahead to the story of Genesis 3, we also see the story of rupture, the story of brokenness, the story of, um, of pain and death entering the world. And that happens through a meal. It happens through the consumption of food outside of the order that God had created it. And then we look at the sort of resulting ruptures, the the curse, um, and we see the ramifications on our relationship to our bodies. We see the ramifications in our relationship to creation, and we see our relationship and our, the ramifications in our relationships to one another, um, that all of these relationships are ruptured in the fall. Um, and so the story of create, uh, the story of kind of human history is the story of both living in a creation that God has called good and living in a creation that God has designed for us to experience in our bodies and through this gift of taste, this gift of food, this gift of meals shared with other people around the table, but also a world that is affected by the brokenness of the fall. And so I think all of human history is kind of this wrestling between both needing to meet our human needs for uh, sustenance and nutrition and our human needs for community, but also wrestling against the brokenness of creation. And so we see all kinds of sort of distorted ways of engaging with creation as a result. And so I think, you know, we experience this brokenness in allergies or in, you know, illness, the inability to enjoy God's gift of food because our body uh, rejects it. We see it in sort of the complexities of our food system of people trying to grow enough food to feed everybody, um, but also trying to, you know, grow food in such a way that we don't have to toil quite so hard. Um, and then we see, you know, both the gifts that that offers and the ramifications that that come as a result. And so I think um, kind of the ways that we relate to our body through food, um, and especially the ways that dieting comes into play, mirrors that once again, that we are trying to get some semblance of control in the midst of a broken creation, 
But we do it in such a distorted way when we don't recognize that ultimately food is a gift from God and our bodies are a gift from God and it's designed to bring us into relationship with one another. So I feel like this doesn't get talked about very much in the church. Would you agree no. with that? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, that's like why my work you exists just said. Because, yeah, totally. because people don't even know where to begin. I, yes. And um, I, I, oh, wow. Yeah. Isn't that the truth? Um, and and I think we want this to be and need this yes, to be talked absolutely, about. Absolutely, absolutely. And also, I grew. I certainly grew up. I'm not in those same evangelical circles today, but I grew up very much in a system that we were cut off at the at the head. You know, just these yeah, heads, yeah, walking around, very disembodied. And so even just any conversation about the body is not uh, something that is regularly or rarely or maybe never talked about from the, the pulpit. Yeah. There have been many more books lately, I would say in the past five years, maybe 10, but five, that, that are focusing on um, our bodies. Yes. Well, I mean, it's, it's scary to talk about the body sometimes because the body is broken. <laughs> you know, yeah. when uh, we when we exist and think and and sort of talk and and imagine our faith to be solely in our mind, um we can kind of avoid some of the brokenness of creation. We yeah. we can get this semblance of control, this idea that we have control over life and the world and our bodies. And when we bring our body into it, we realize how little control we actually have. And we realize how susceptible we are to, again, the brokenness of creation. It just always comes back to that. So it's scary to talk about our bodies because um, we then get into these questions of, you know, how do I use my body to honor God? How do I delight in these gifts of God? And also, how do I, you know, avoid pain? <laughs> How do I avoid, um, you know, the things that I, that I don't want to be part of my, the human existence and it gets messy and the answers are less clear cut. Um, but I also think that God, God, God gave us bodies. And the only way we experience God's creation is through these bodies. Mm -hmm. And so really in a way, the only way we truly know God is through our experience with the material world. Um, I will just add to that, this exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation <laughs> point, as if I'm audio texting right now. <laughs> yes, I totally agree with that. And there's something about making bread that is a full body experience. Yes. So I, I'm a, I'm a big lover of, oh, different shows that are on, but I, I love the, the, um, best British baking show, you know, Paul yes. Hollywood, the <laughs> guy, et cetera. And, um, and sometimes when you see someone kneading bread, you know, they're, they're sweating. Like, you know, this yeah. firsthand talk about the yeah. physicality of making bread. It's hard work. It's hard work, <laughs> especially if you're making a large volume of bread, you know, it, mm -hmm. it is bread is incredibly strong and it takes a lot of strength to develop the dough but it also takes kind of this sensory awareness of the needs of bread. The bread reacts to different, um, you know, changes in humidity, changes in temperature. Um, and so you kind of have to sense with your hands and with your nose what the bread needs and, and how to respond. And so 
it is a very um it's a very sensory experience and also a, a very tactile experience but a very um like strength requiring yeah. experience as well well and i think uh i think that's part of maybe why i brought up the british baking show they're in this tent which they have to really pay attention to yeah uh the elements you know it's not uh, the humidity and all kinds of things and i i don't think i realized how much especially bread maybe some other foods too but bread you really have to pay attention to the external elements and and how i'm curious if you um if you need bread by hand i mean you might be doing large volumes and sometimes you can't there you know there are the big and in big bakeries they've got the big machines yes. my, my parents it was they it was hand cranked um oh wow kneading in a big kettle yeah. thing i don't know yeah. what you call it but well, the, the method that I teach is um, sort of a, a take on Mark Bittman's no need bread. Um, so it actually, we when you slow down the process and you allow water to and time to do most of the work, Ooh. it actually takes away a lot of the physical sort of manual work that we need to do. Um, so it is still it is still hard work to mix that water into the flour, but then once it's mixed in, you let it sit and rest kind of takes over <laughs> and does that work for us. And so um, there is there is a need to sort of be aware and respond to these changes in humidity and weather. Um, but then there's also a need to sit back and let time and yeast and water do its work. But this is why, you know, I, I love thinking about the ways that bread informs the ways we understand faith. Um, because bread is it is not a mystery that can be solved or a technique that can be mastered um it is something that you have to commit to sort of learning over the course of your life and you learn something new every time you bake bread and i think Great. the journey of faith is the same that it's not totally god is not a mystery for us to unlock and yep. you know our faith is not something that like we ask Jesus into our heart and then, you know, now we're good. It is a continual <laughs> lifelong transformation. And there is always more that we can learn. And there's always, God is always drawing us deeper and deeper into um, his presence and his heart. Yeah. It's not that life of faith, that spiritual life. It's not, um, you know, checking off the check marks. It is very yeah. fluid and transformation is, uh, messy. And, you it know, I, I love that, um, that metaphor of bread and the spiritual life, um, and life of faith. I think that's beautiful. Yeah. Uh, wow. There's just so many different directions <laughs> we can go. I'm, you know, talking, watching the time, thinking about all the questions I have. Uh, <laughs> um, one, I will say this, that, um, we won't get into this, but you talk about also that uptick in, and I couldn't believe the statistics of bread making during the pandemic and yes. the amount of flour bought. Was it King Arthur flour that yes. gave the statistics? Yes, it was something like they sold twice as much in the first seven months of 2020 as they had sold in the t the whole of 2019. I, I that was, and that's shocking. of the five pound bags. It doesn't even doesn't even account for all the 50 pound bags. I was buying, you know, 50 pound bags of flour. I was buying eight, ten at a time. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah. I and mean, I knew, and we knew this because 
lots of things were flying off the shelves, uh, toilet paper being one of them. But then I realized because they started reporting on it, that flour uh, and and sugar too, but flour was another one that was really taking off. And I remember getting my little five pound bag kind of that fear of, I better get it. Better get it. <laughs> well, sure. I remember my my last trip, my roommate and I took a trip to Target and we were like, okay, well, we, we've got to figure out what we're going to do. You know, it seems like we're going to be home for a while. So this was our probably last trip to the store for a solid month. And I remember walking past the flower and the, the, and the aisle was just completely bare. And I kind of quipped like, oh, is everyone going to start baking bread now? <laughs> <laughs> Little did you like, know. Who, who knows? Like people, people find bread way too hard. They're not going to start. And then suddenly everybody is making bread. But, really, you know, that, that speaks to, I think, kind of this visceral, um, the visceral connection that bread offers us to, um, to ourselves, to God, to community, I think to sort of this historical community that humans have been baking bread for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And bread has been the core of the human diet for thousands and thousands and thousands of years for most people around the world. And so when we bake bread, I think it does in some kind of mysterious way, pull us into, I think our bodies sort of remember um, the generations of humans who have been baking bread. Um, and it kind of restores us to community and restores us to ourselves. And so in this pandemic, when we are all completely separated from one another, I I don't think it's ironic at all that it was bread that we all pulled to because we all sort of know on a visceral way that bread somehow connects us to each other. So, so interesting. I, I, a part of the book uh, and a part of your story too is... Um, really looking for deeper experience of community. Yes. Um, and specifically within the context of, of faith, a faith community, fellow Christians. Uh, I, I would love for you to talk about why, and I could, because I think this is absolutely true, but why churches struggle so much? Why do they struggle in fostering meaningful um, opportunities for experiencing community? Yeah. Well, I think it goes back to, again, that idea of um, us being just heads, <laughs> floating heads or heads on a pogo stick that, you know, heads, if if faith is all in our minds, then we don't need each other. We can, we can gather together to worship, but it's really more about kind of what we say and what we sing and what we think. Um, but again, when we turn back to that Genesis story, that's not what we see. We see humans created with the need to eat and a need for community. And we see both of those needs met together when we gather around the table. And then when we look at Jesus sort of initial um, launching of the church, it's around a table. It's through a meal that it is a meal of bread and wine that kind of becomes the cornerstone of Christian worship. Um, And so I think we have lost sight of the value of that actual eating together because we see that as kind of an optional piece. Um, Mm -hmm. We see the community formation as an optional piece, not as integral to what it means to worship God. Why? why? Is that, uh, I mean, I just, I sometimes say that it's the West, you know, very much the- Yes, I use we very loosely. (laughs) Individual, individualistic kind of living. But I mean, I I, people crave community, um, right? They do. And well, I think another huge piece of what has led to kind of this, this in the West, especially is um, 
an overemphasis on the nuclear family as the mm. way that our communal needs are met rather than an emphasis on the church community. So Thank we you. look at that Genesis story and we see that, you know, God said it's not good for a human to be alone. And so God created a partner and we look at that and say, oh, marriage must be God's sort of answer to our loneliness. Um, but Jesus was single. Paul was single. Um, our churches are full of single people. And just statistically, that's going to continue to be more and more the case. Church history is full of really powerful single people. Um, and so, you know, when we look at that, we have to say, maybe, maybe God has a different idea of how it is that we uh, have that need for community met. And we see all of sort of Jesus's life is this reshaping our understanding of what it means to be family. Um, and so I believe that it's in church community. It's the commitment we make when we share communion together that God uh, most deeply meets, meets our need for community and for companionship. And I just wanted to interject. I was, I'm so glad you talked about single um, adults. I just want to say, and those who are single again, via divorce mm -hmm. or widowhood. Yes. I mean, it, it, yes. yes. Um, um, that, that is a significantly growing population across all ages, the single population. It is. It is. I'm so yeah. glad you talked about that. Um, wow. Okay. Um, what is your hope? I mean, There's so many facets of the book that we have not touched on and don't have time to touch on. I do want to say this. You break it down into four parts, um, flour, water, yeast, and salt. I love how you break it down and you have four chapters under each of those headings. Um, what, what was the easiest and what was the hardest to write about? Oh, gosh. <laughs> None of it was easy, I would say. Because <laughs> this, writing is hard. Period. Writing is hard. But this <laughs> this was, to me, a very different um, process than I think anything else I've written before. But, I mean, I, I like to say that this book sort of um, out, lays out a theology of bread as told through my story. And so it's hard to write your own story. Um, so, so you would even say this is memoir-esque? I would say so, yes. Yeah, yeah. memoir-esque, narrative nonfiction, whatever you want to call it. Yes, yes. <laughs> Um, but you know, it, it was, it was both very difficult to write through these stories, but also for me, it was a very healing process. Um, I think going back through and writing these stories, it helped to illuminate so many threads that have been present throughout sort of my life. Um, and to really see God's faithfulness throughout the whole of my life was a real gift to me. Um, and my hope is that readers who come to it will also themselves find a sense of that healing that um they will see you know it, it tells the story of both brokenness and redemption it tells the story of really hard communities um of a lot of pain in community of hard relationships to food of a lot of pain in relationship to food um and it also tells the story of healing through communities and healing through food and a lot of those times the two go hand in hand mm. And so my hope is that as readers come to it, they will, in reading my story and kind of seeing the ways that, that God speaks through bread, that they will see the ways that God has been present in both the areas of brokenness and healing in their own life as well. Well, I think any, any good book, any good story, and you have many in the book, uh, the, the themes are transcendent. And that's exactly yeah. what people will find um, in your book by Bread Alone. I, the subtitle, I didn't say this earlier, but it's uh, a baker's reflections on hunger, longing, and the goodness of God. 
I mean, that sums it up right there, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Ah, good stuff. Kendall Vanderslice, just a joy to be with you. And uh, again, folks, we've barely scratched the surface um, as we've talked just a little bit about by bread alone. Um, I highly recommend it. And there's, there'll be more information in the show notes for you. Kendall, thank you again for being with me. So appreciate you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. And to everyone else, I say, keep the conversation going.